My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. A very little key will open a very heavy door. Charles Dickens. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so grateful that you're listening. Today, you're going to hear from one of the most courageous and inspiring people I know, my mom, Caroline. She texted me a few weeks ago saying she felt ready to return to the show to discuss a super important topic, how it feels to have abuse experiences validated and believed. She knows because she's lived it. We'll cover some heavy subject matter that may be sensitive for some folks, but there will also be plenty of light because that's who she is. We'll also talk a bit about body positivity and hear Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts for a listener who received an apology note from someone who assaulted her, and it's not sitting quite right for some really valid reasons. A quick reminder before we dive in to sign up for Girl Boner Extras on my website, augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. I send news about upcoming events, behind-the-scenes fun, lessons I've learned, and a whole bunch more about once a month. You can also find my Girl Boner book on Amazon and pre-order Girl Boner Journal, a fun guided journal and workbook set to release this winter, and the Girl Boner audiobook releasing December 4th. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome my mom. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being back here. Oh, I'm so I'm it's a joy to be back. So, listeners may remember if mm-hmm. they caught our previous, I think our last episode was sex and samosas. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you shared a little bit about growing up in India. Yes. Which is really interesting. Would you share before we get into some of the struggles and hardships? You described your childhood also as magical. It was very magical. What was magical about it? Well, you know, my mother also grew up in India, and she went to boarding school very young and was very homesick. So she made the decision when she went to India that her kids would be homeschooled at least till middle school, and then we would get to choose. So the homeschooling was amazing for me because my mother ran a dispensary. My mother had oh, probably four or five different jobs. But she, we had our, it was Calvert, Calvert Correspondence Courses from Baltimore, Maryland. And we were, my tests would be sent to a teacher in the States, et cetera, et cetera. So she had lesson plans and everything. But schooling lasted from 8 in the morning until 10. In because, the morning? In the morning. That, how come I didn't get that? <laughs> I, wish I, could, I wish I could give that to every child <laughs> so they could go and explore other things. What did you do the rest of the day? Uh, well, I had, I had assignments. I had to, I had reading assignments, homework. But then I grew up on a, on a compound, which is kind of like, I would call it a, uh, a college campus, really huge, because we had a boarding school on it. We had, so we had boarders. We had a church, a school. We had our, our mission home. And then I called them the Baptist nuns. The single lady missionaries had their home. 
So it was huge. It was huge. And I, it was all fenced in. And I had free reign as long as I didn't leave the compound. Wow. So I learned things like I would go. I learned I, one, of, one of the people that lived in our, on our compound was weaving a sari on a big bamboo floor loom. I learned how to weave. And you still weave. I do. Yeah. And then I, we had many tribal people where I grew up. We grew up near the, I grew up near the Himalayas. And um, the tribal weaving is very different. It's backstrap. It's very much like South American, if you ever see that kind of like a Mayan loom, that kind of thing. And I loved it so much that instead of a playhouse, my dad had a weaving house built for me. So I had my own place to go and weave. And can I share my favorite story that all our grandkids always want to hear? Yeah, I have, I'm curious which one it is. <laughs> well, I was weaving one day, and I looked up. It was a bamboo-thatched roof of my, my little weaving house. And there was a gigantic python. Oh, this one. Draped, draped on, on all the beams, of, of the bamboo beams. <laughs> and I knew that a python, if they get you in their ear gaze, you would be frozen. And that's, and they can, so if you're frozen, they can swallow you. <laughs> frozen meaning you're paralyzed in they fear? Par- yeah, but they have, if you connect gazes, that's what happens. And that's how they get their animals or people. <laughs> And I saw it, and I had chills up and down my spine, and I ran to the house. But it oh. was probably 15, 20 feet long. It oh was my huge. Gosh. So, wow. But anyway, that was. <laughs> but we are, you know, I lived on a mission compound. And you speak many languages. I grew up speaking right. two languages, you know, English and Two Asa- main languages. Yes. And Assamese is the, the tribal tra- language. No, it's the trade language. The trade language. Of what then was called Assam. The pa- the, since then, the maps have changed quite a bit. So, but Assam was the size of Wisconsin, and it had 110 dialects and languages. Wow. Because there were so many tribal people. And Hindi and I, is the national language. Hindi, well, now, it, now Hindi is the national language. When I was growing up at first, it was English because of the English domination of India. And then nationalism took over, and Hindi became the national Okay. So I do. I call. It, I speak bazaar Hindi. I can negotiate in a bazaar. I could ask what prices are, <laughs> but my forms are not not the best grammar. Put it that <laughs> way. But I can get by. That still is really cool to yeah. me. But our our um, mission kind of also became an animal rescue because people, if they didn't know what to do with an animal, a wild animal, they'd say, "Oh, take it to the Sahab." You know, he, maybe he can do something with it. So uh, we had a baby elephant that was found Pinky. floating. Punk, his name was Punky. Oh, Punky the elephant. Yes. And then you had We Ruff had and Rough and Ready. Ready the tiger cubs, Mumbo and Jumbo the Himalayan black bears, Uncle Tukey a stork. <laughs> and these were just, those were, it, we also had Buddha and Booty, old man and old lady, Siamese cats in the house. <laughs> And I grew up with an amazing German shepherd. He was called an Alsatian because he was British. Mm. And my dad had gotten him from Calcutta. So I remember a- growing up using that as bargaining chips. I was like, you got to have monkeys and tigers. Why can't I have another hamster? <laughs> and when dad would leave, what would I do? Take you to the pet store and we'd he'd come <laughs> home and there'd be a new, sometimes another three Snuggles. or four pets. I had like four hamsters named Snuggles. Uh, and the, yeah. the mice were the worst ideas. But anyway. Anyway, moving on from there. <laughs> yeah.
So I would love to talk a little bit about your abuse history. Yeah. Now, I know from growing up, you didn't recall it for a long time. So how old were you roughly when the memory started to surface? I was in, I, I was 42. Okay. And in a way, you know, I thought that was kind of a gift that I, I didn't have full memory before 42 because I had all my kids. I was, at 42, I got hit with a, a huge depression. And what do you think triggered that or why the memories might come about then? Because... I think because I was always having little little glimpse. That's why I say a little key can open up a very large door. I had little little bits. I had I one thing I wondered is now that I have four daughters and a son, why do my daughters when they are little never have bloody underwear? Aww. Because I did. And there was other stuff in it too. You know, the, and and then, and then it would whisper away. You know, and I'd have little fleeting things. And I know after my first daughter was born, I know I had major depression, and I didn't want to tell anybody I was depressed. And I equated, now after my memories came back, I equated all the abuse with like a dagger in my bottom. And after my oldest daughter was born, I was afraid of every kitchen knife because I had hurt. And I was worried I was going to do something to her. I didn't think, thank God, you know. Right, right. But um, did that I feel did, like postpartum depression? It. it was, yeah. Yeah. But I swallowed it. I when you get abused as a child, it's so heinous the experience that the only way to cope is to swallow it, or go crazy. So the brain protected you from it first, yeah. and then as it started to surface. You were swallowing it because you had also learned to do that as a child to, yeah, to survive, yep, right? To survive. Yep. So when the memories started to come back more so in your early forties, it seemed to me that was it because the depression was more severe? What what prompted you to be so open? Because you were very open with us, you and Dad. I well, I told well, you guys had to know about the depression bit because I was on suicide watch three times, and in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they needed, they didn't need to know, you didn't need to know why, but you needed to know I was going through something. And that it was okay, that he would take care of you. I would be, you know, he was just, we were comforting to you guys. But we didn't want to say, you know, moms have, you know, what mom's going, uh, that you didn't need a whole picture, put it that way. And I really appreciated the way that you spoke about it, because what I remember is that you and dad did, you did let us know that it was for depression. Yeah. Which I thought was really important and a gift because moving forward in my own life, I did not feel st- the kind of stigma that some people feel around mental illness because I remember you or dad saying, if somebody has cancer, they get cancer treatment. If yeah. somebody has depression, they get depression treatment. And that was all a gift from my best friend from high school, Loanne, who developed schizophrenia when she was 21. She was amazing. And she called me and she said, she she was in the hospital and she told me she had schizophrenia and she said, I want you to know, you know, just how people get sick. They can get cancer. They can get this or that. Sometimes the mind gets sick, too, and the mind needs medicine. It's just that I have the sickness in my mind that's going to have to be taken care of. And that really helped me with my depression. But to tell you how the memories started coming out, for one thing, my sister had been through a horrendous divorce and was in counseling. 
And while she was in counseling, see, she was abused, but not to the extent that I was, and never suppressed it. She always knew, never forgot it. And talked to you about it? Well, she asked me, she said, Carol, do you remember what Dad used to do in our bedroom? I said, you know, I really don't. You know, I really don't remember anything. Because you didn't at that I time. I didn't remember. And she did the same to my brothers, and she she also confronted my father. And they all said to me and to her, she was always the liar of the family. And look what she's doing now. Mm-hmm. And she destroyed her life with getting a divorce. And now look what she's doing. She's trying to bring us down to, I mean, that's, there was not much sympathy for her at all. So then my parents, it was, I think it may have been their 50th wedding anniversary. And we saw bunches of old pictures came out. Oh. I did a lot of the cooking for it because I, I do a lot this. of Indian cooking. Mm-hmm. I got to the celebration, and all of a sudden, it was like that door with the little key opened wide. Wow. And I was hit so hard that I got physically sick and had to leave. At the events? Yeah. And, and excused myself and left. How did you navigate that so you left did you tell dad did you tell well, dad why? knew I was having depression issues because I was weeping I you know I, all the signs of depression this and I had prayed you know I got you know what is this where's the joy in my life it's gone mm-hmm. I need it back and um so you know he knew I was having issues he didn't know the underlying causes so I went to a, a really good therapist and when I met her, her name was Rita, and she said, I want you to know, yes, you have depression, and I'm, you're going to be, I, I want you to see a psychiatrist and get on medication. And then let's do some talk therapy. I know you say that maybe you were sexually abused, but let's not say that that is fact. Let's explore. Let's see what comes when we talk. That's so lovely because she didn't disbelieve you either no she didn't disbelieve me and also I had heard that oh therapists they it's they will put ideas in your head that you got you had the worst kind of abuse you know and she was never like that it was very open yeah but 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 also poor Rita I didn't want to talk about anything that mattered Uh oh and (laughs) you're stubborn I have anything (laughs) anything she would bring up and She'd tell me to close my eyes and pretend I was in a safe place. And I, I'd peek at her with one eye, and she'd say, well, I guess that's not working. Oh, no. She said, what, what gave you pleasure? What can we do that gave you pleasure before all this happened? I said, my weaving. She said, well, then weave something. And used my art. Weave colors. I, at that point, I couldn't do the weaving I was doing in India. And I had met a little lady who taught me how to do hand twining, make my own loom, do hand twining on a loom with, and it was all recycled fabrics, jeans and stuff like that. She said, use colors to express your, to express your anger. And I thought, anger? Are you kidding me? I've never been allowed to express anger. I was always, as a child, I was said, no, you do, you never do that. And you always respect your father, no matter what. You always do that. So I had those things ingrained in my brain. And the guilt factor of going to that place was terrible. 
So I did weave. I wove a rug in every color of red, and I brought my loom to therapy. <laughs> and then one night, I know a lot of people laugh at me, but we you know Walker, Texas Ranger. Yes, I know. <laughs> yes, it's on. I had a watched a show, <laughs> and it was all about a bag lady uh-huh. who had seen a murder and helped solve this murder. Yeah. So flash forward. What do I do during the middle of the night? I got a poem about a bag lady, how she was pushing her cart, and it was full of tied-up sacks of memories, of everything that was important to her, and she was plodding along. And I thought, wow, she's no different than me. Mm. And the next day, I got up in the morning. I had to get up in the middle. of I was doing a lot of writing in the bathroom at night. <laughs> so I'd write the poem when I'd get it. But... In the morning, I went and I wove her. I wove. I even used wire and wove a grocery cart. I used great grandma's old buttons for wheels, <laughs> and I took her to Rita, mm-hmm. and it was the beginning of my healing. You know, since then, my it's a long story, but I was able at, to forgive him, and I've been always been thankful that he who abused me gave me the tools for healing. Mm. And I never even knew that that's what that was. Wow. And I had it all along. That's Which, incredible. Yeah. And um, so anyway, after that, you know, so then what do I, I, I wanted to be, when you first know that you've been abused, and my medicine was beginning to, I was beginning to feel better, you need to talk. You need to talk to your friends. You need to to be validated. They need to know why you've been gone for a while you know socially gone and some of my friends their reaction was how dare you your dad is like a a saint are you going to a therapist from such and such a group and they had these that you know they wanted me in this mold yeah and I, if that's the mold, I had broken, and I was not going to go back. So were they, they were angry that you were speaking up about it, but yep. it sounds like they also didn't believe you. Or no, they didn't, they didn't want believe, to believe me. You. No, I was the same thing as my sister. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I did have friends who were amazing and believed me. Yeah. And, um, but the funny thing, I mean, it's not funny, but a strange thing. Like my best friend, the the way my, the way my abuse was found out, was I was visiting a mission station near ours that had a hospital, and my best friend lived there with her family, mm. and there were several families there and a mission doctor and all that, and I got to go. My dad went on a trip, and I got to go with. And I was playing with her in the morning, and I said, you know, I kind of need to go to the bathroom. There's something wrong. And in my underwear was a pool of blood and what I thought was guck. It was semen. Her mother was a trained social worker. She ran and got her mom. She said, she's bleeding, Mom. You have to come. And they took the underwear to the hospital and had it analyzed. And my dad was found out. And all the missionaries have this thing, what they call it, a mission uh, field council where they all get together, and that's how they decide things. So it was brought up. What are we going to do about this? And what was decided? Well, what was decided is 
my dad would always have two or three people with him, accompany him whenever he went to a village or anything like that. He could never go alone. But nothing was for ever, him. But for what me, about for you? No, no. Nothing? Did anyone oh, talk to I, you? She's little. She'll forget it. Get oh. her a puppy. And he did. He got me a puppy. <sighs> you know, and not and not only that, I re, you know, I also remember that they told me that this really nice man was coming to visit from America, chair of the mission board. <laughs> was coming from from America to visit, and I needed to be really nice to him. And so he took me by myself, and I remember just chatting with him. I don't ever, I don't remember, but... Uh, he must have come out and said, she's going to be fine. Oh, jeez. She's going to be fine. Just don't do it again. Uh, just, just don't do it again. And, you know, do do our, do our those things that I, we've told you, the instructions surrounding you. And I think we're going to be good to go. This is such an important part of your story, I think, because so many people may think that that's the case for someone who experienced something and, oh, they took care of it, so therefore yep. moving forward. She's little. Kids are resilient. Right. She's not going to remember. But you had a lot of repercussions. I had tons of repercussions. Could you speak to those a little bit more? So obviously you had depression. I had depression. And then I'd have flashbacks. Yeah. Um, I have to apologize to Oprah Winfrey, but I can't. I cannot see the movie The Color Purple. It's too heavy. Because the, when I saw it and she had, I think they call it a focal point. When she was being abused, she would look at this picture. Well, when I was being abused, I looked at my dad's arm. And one day, this was when I'm being treated for depression, going through, I'm driving down the road and there's a Jeep next to me at a stop sign. And the sun hits this guy's arm that's sticking out the window. And right down to the mole, it was my dad's arm. Mm. And I, I had to pull over, you know, because th- that, so that little things like that would bring back a flood. And there was like this code of silence between all the mission, all the missionaries knew. They saw me going through struggles. They saw my sister going through horrendous struggles because she made some various choices that turned out to be very bad for her. And um, fortunately, I had an amazing husband, you know, and caring and et cetera. I had a whole core behind me. But why didn't anybody say anything? Why didn't they say, I'm so, it was like there was this giant elephant in the room. And I'd go to mission functions, and people would be either overly kind to me, or they'd look at me like, oh, there's that poor girl. You know, she's probably kind of dirty. I'd never want her to marry one of my kids. They were slut-shaming you. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of... For being abused. Mm-hmm. That's so sad, and that still happens a lot yep. to people. But yeah. I have to tell you, I did confront my father in a letter because I knew I knew my dad. I knew him through and through. And I knew that I could not go and talk to him by myself and get the words out. Because he would shut me up, but with his words. Yeah. And um, so I wrote a letter, and when I did that, I also called my mom's brother. And I said, I want you to know that this is what's happened. This is what I'm going through, and I'm confronting my dad in a letter 
and my mom's going to need support. I want you to be there for her. And he said, I knew it. I just mm. knew it. I knew there was something there. How did that feel to you to have that I need to get some somebody who validated me. Yeah. That, that believed what went on. I wasn't lying. That's one of the most important things that anybody can and do. And I think of the Kavanaugh trial. Yeah. How brave was she to come forward? Huge. How, how brave. What courage was that? And... People say, well, why bring it up after all this time? Well, guess what? It's like a cancer inside of you. It's like a bad infection. It's always there. And it needs to be cleaned. It needs to be healed. So anyway, so I did confront my dad. And of course, he wanted to meet with me privately. And I said, the only way I'll meet with you is in a church with a minister, with some of my friends to support me. And I'm inviting my sister, too. Your sister was there? Yep. Yep, she was, and my sister came. Because the, for the first time, she was validated, too. One other, one other thing way back, when I was first married, I, went, I was at the University of Minnesota with my husband. And um, I went in for my first OB checkup with my first child. And one thing about going to the university like that, a lot of students... And sometimes they talk about you like you were not there and a slab of meat. And I remember them as they put that, I think it's called a speculum, I always called it shoehorns, to examine my inner parts. Um, they said, whoa, she has some really old scarring in there. Mm -hmm. She must have had some really rough sex some, at some point. Aww. And I remember when I was little, that's one of my memories too, is touching myself and getting a little piece of skin and a little bit of blood on my fingers oh. and burning like all get out, I'm you know? I'm so sorry, Mom. It's awful. So, but I thought, huh, yeah. why are you say how awful to say something like that about a person? They that said one, that to you? They, no, they're, they're, they're talking amongst themselves like I'm not there. They're oh, students that's and the doctor who's the they teacher. said that. I mean, even if it, it was, was two from rough students sex, and a doctor, way, that yeah. is so inappropriate. But yeah, but it was it was them and talking amongst themselves. Like I, she's not going to hear this. Aww. She's probably too traumatized by what we're doing to her. <laughs> but I'm, my thought was, I am never telling my husband where did that come from. Wow. What happened to me? Aww. And I swallowed it. So I swallowed it like yeah. I swallowed all the other stuff. Right. So, so once you started having these memories resurface after yeah. at this party and moving yep. forward, you you did confront Grandpa. Yep. You got treatment. I did, and then and then did you remember most of? I mean, do you have really vivid memories now of most of what happened? You know what really really helped and gave me a chronological order of everything that happened. After both my parents passed away, one of my parents' peer missionaries came to my house. She was 90. Dear, loving lady. She said, I came here today to tell you that I knew, and I'm so sorry it happened to you. Aww. And then she says, but you know your dad was a good man and did good things too. And is that something you wanted to hear? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't dispute that he did amazing things. My dad did yeah. some amazing things. Amazing people do bad things. And that's a hard thing to accept, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, to know that because people will say, well, 
that's a friend of mine who they're accusing. But yep. there are a lot of really kind people in general. They're kind yep. to many people, yep. and they also abuse. And that's yep. that's really difficult, I think, to well, accept. Well, and here's the kicker of all. My, and I wouldn't have known this unless my mother had told me. We get a call that my dad had a stroke. And my mom said, I want you. My, my sister and I went to the hospital. Of course, I called Uncle Al right away and told him, Mom's going to need you, <laughs> you know. So, and of course, he was there. And um, anyway, when we, uh, Mom said that he was going to. He told her that evening, in the morning, I'm going to apologize to my daughters. And in the Bible, is a verse about don't ever let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve it first. Go to bed in peace. And look what happened. He could never spoke again. Wow. So I did go to visit him by myself. I did read him some scripture. I had wo- I wove him an angel, and I put it up, and I said, you know, Dad, I knew you were coming to ask forgiveness, and I want you to know that I forgive you. And he had a tear roll down his cheek, even though he couldn't speak. Mm-hmm. So I know he heard. And people, you know, forgiveness is a very complicated thing with something like this. Not everybody is ready for it. it. It's a journey. But if you don't forgive, you're held captive. And that abuse doesn't go away. Because the, it, it, the bitter, the, when, you, when you are unforgiving, you become bitter. I'd rather be better. You forgive for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you've cultivated such incredible healing. Ever well, since I've had then. so many amazing. I mean, if I were to list people who rallied around me, and then my amazing husband and my my, I still have no idea what my brothers think of all of this. I do know right afterwards when I confronted Dad, I had given Christmas gifts, and guess what? They magically ended up back on my foot on my front step. <laughs> So, you know, and I know abuse goes in families. Yeah. I don't know if there's more in our family. I don't know where it came from for, with my dad. I do know that he was four when his dad died. And I, I, I have to be grateful, and I am grateful, that I was always provided for. I never went hungry. I always had clothes. You know, I, but, um, but dad wasn't very cuddly. You know, and I don't think he knew how to be a father, a loving father, to to show his own emotions, because I think something happened to him. Because back then, when he was little, his mom had to, as a single mom, had to go to work. And he told me he had terrible memories of his one uncle. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I don't know. It's not for me to know or judge. All I, all I can attest to is what happened to me my journey and if it helps me it helps to share my story if one person can find healing or can find a way to forgive because um i go back again to one more quote from the bible you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and now i'm free Mm. but uh, one of my can i tell you my one of my favorite little poems of course it's a limerick okay There once was a wise woman weaver 
who wove pretty pictures to please her. She wove away strife with pictures of life because weaving was her pain reliever. And that's what it was to me. And people can't believe. If you look at my weavings, I have many that I wove. They're all very, like, they're, they're like little children. It was all my inner, my inner child that was hurt is being addressed in all of them. Except the big lady, you know, she's, she's, she's old, but we need, need a wise one in there too. But I've had such wonderful women. And, I, and when I was growing up, I had a nanny, her, Aya. Her, her name was Binu. I had a, we had a cook, you know, because my mom, they, had so, they were so busy, and we didn't even have electricity when we first were there. And the, our cook's name was Dao. He taught me how to cook. He was illiterate, totally illiterate, but loving. And I was surrounded by, I feel like I had a couple sets of parents. My parents who provided, and then these loving, loving people who just filled me with joy and saw nothing but good in me. And I, you know, not that I deserved any of that, but that's how they were. They just were so, so sweet. That's beautiful. And that's what you radiate too and what you put so. forth. And one thing I've noticed too in your journey that's been really inspiring is as is common with a lot of people who go through abuse, it affected how you felt about your body oh, and very, your appearance. Very. And your journey from that has been really interesting and I think inspiring. Could you share a little bit about Yeah. Well that thirty path? years ago I started being treated for hypothyroidism. Ever since then I've had a weight issue. I've never had a weight issue before that time. And um, not only that, but you feel small and dirty when, you're, when you've been abused. You, you feel unimportant. And sometimes you hide, you know, I, I also ate for comfort. It was, you know, if I was upset, um, you'd hear me crunching. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, immediate. It's something yeah. you can just reach for. And, and one thing that's yeah. really helped me recently and filled me with so much joy is um, the story. The, the story of us is that what it's called? It's, this is us. Oh, this is yeah. us. So the actress Chrissy Metz, I know. Has yeah, been Chrissy Metz has given me so much hope and joy. She's so beautiful. She accepts herself just the way she is. She dresses beautifully, and um. I don't know. She she gives me hope that I can just, I just feel like I can be me. I don't have to be skinny for people to like me. Mm-hmm. And hey, why not decorate it? <laughs> <laughs> and you do such a good job of it. Oh, well, I think you're you kind. Have, no, you have a good sense of it. You sew your own outfits together, and it's always well, yeah, it's very lovely. Yeah, and and I think it's cool that her character also goes through challenges, you know, yep. be, feeling judged. Yep, feeling judged, against. hiding food, yeah. <laughs> you know, hiding something that I probably really shouldn't be eating this, but if I put it in here, and no one's going to see it, and yeah. then and then enjoying it, Aww. and then feeling guilty about it. Right, it's a roller yep. coaster. Mm-hmm. So how have you c- kind of been able to heal through that? Um, I, you know, I, I like I said, if you're... When you're set free, you know, the truth will set you free, and you will be free indeed. I feel like I'm free. And if I'm free, why does would it matter if someone's going to size me up or say, 
Oh, there's that girl who said those horrible lies about her dad. You know, <laughs> none of that, it, it, doesn't, it has no effect on me anymore. Mm. I, one of my techniques I learned from Rita was to have a Teflon mind. And those things land in a frying pan and slide right out. And, of course, there are times, and there always will be, when there are struggles still that will come up and, and there will be little bites that make you think, oh, me. You know, there were I've told people, do you know how much I wanted this not to be true? Do you, does anybody know that? They, you know. That's such a good point. And, um, you know, so there, there will be times, I mean, it's life. You get bumps in the road. Yeah. But I've learned so many techniques. I went through um, um, th- a therapy. Do you remember what it DBT? was called? DBT? Yeah, DBT. Dialectical, Dialectical Behavioral, Behavioral Therapy. I, w- I went through that three times <laughs> just because That's I learned great. so much. Yeah, and it really incorporates mindfulness, right? It does. It really does. A whole blend of philosophies yep. and, and it's practices. It's got um, a lot of meditation in it, a lot of focus, wise mind is one of my favorites. What's wise mind? Radical. There's radical mind and there's emotional mind, but when they come together and cross, that little middle part is wise mind because you need both. Uh, Radical mind you need to do math problems and things (laughs) like that. Emotional you need for love. Yeah. But not either one totally. It's your head and your heart, right? It's the feelings and and the rationale. Yep. Yeah, it's a middle ground. I have a cross on my middle finger that's tattooed, and my mantra is God in the center of my life, good balance and good boundaries. And I like to have the tattoo because, guess what? I still need reminding. There are days that I need reminding. So... But I, I wish I wish I could help other people. I would I would love to share my weavings and poetry with people, if it would help. But then I think, who's gonna buy those? Because I, I wove them and I mounted them on driftwood that I collected from Lake Lake Superior, and the driftwood was beaten by the by, on the rocks with waves, and I feel like that's part of my story too. That driftwood is still beautiful, but it's not what it was. But the core of it's the same. The person is still there. So. And they're really beautiful. Oh, thanks. No, I love them. And I love the greeting cards you've made out of them. Oh. If you could give one last piece of advice to somebody who's on this kind of healing path, what would you say? Don't be hard on yourself and take baby steps. And remember, now you're a grown-up. Those things that happened to you then... They may come into your mind, but they can't physically happen to you again because now you're a grown-up and you know what to do. Be strong. I may be a wee bit biased, but isn't my mom awesome? She was so brave to share her story, and I am ever inspired by her healing journey and wish to help others. After our chat, I asked her what she would tell someone who has gone through similar abuse and isn't being believed, and she said... She would tell them that the truth is powerful and always comes out, but may take time. Interestingly, after my grandfather passed away and my grandmother had moved out of their longtime home, she met one of her brothers at the house, and they were searching through old belongings. 
And the first thing that she spotted in the basement on top of this filing cabinet was a letter my grandfather had started to write to her. It started, Dear Caroline, I'm writing to explain what happened in the night you were little. There was a huge storm, and I went to check on you to fix your blankets. All I did was touch you and fix them. And it went on a bit after that. So there was a lot of denial going on. Uh, but he also admitted for the first time to parts of it. She had this tangible proof and thought that it might make people believe her who hadn't. But unfortunately, it didn't. Some people didn't want to believe and still don't want to believe what happened. But you know what? The truth is still the truth. We may not always get the validation we hope for from others, but that does not make traumatic events less real or less painful or less significant. My mom actually ended up burning the letter, and to me, that seemed symbolic. She didn't need some letter or admittance to know the truth. She lives her truth, and she didn't have to prove herself to anyone else. If you wish to support a friend or loved one after assault, here are some specific phrases staff from the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, the largest anti-sexual violence organization in the U.S., recommended this. I believe you. It took a lot of courage to tell me about this. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve this. You are not alone. I care about you, and I am here to listen or help in any way I can. I'm sorry this happened. This shouldn't have happened to you. And then moving forward, do your best to avoid judgment and check in on the person every now and then, reminding them that you still care and that you still believe them. And for today's Ask Dr. Megan segment, I received a question from a listener that actually reminds me a bit of the letter my mom received from her father in some ways. It's from KJ, who wrote this. I received an email from someone from my past who assaulted me on a date a few years ago. He apologized. I appreciate the apology, but it also hurt because he tried to justify his actions somewhat and made presumptions about me that simply aren't true. I'm torn about whether I should reply and if I do what to say. It brought up painful feelings I hadn't felt in a long time. KJ, thank you so much for your question. I have a feeling a lot of people are feeling validated by it because, as you just heard, my mom received a letter too, and I didn't read uh, the rest of it, but there were some other parts where there was this defensiveness, and I don't think that that's uncommon. So I want you to know that you're not alone, and you don't have to react in any way that isn't um, what's healthy and best for you. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of Great Life, GreatSex.com had to say. KJ, thanks so much for this question. And, you know, I'm going to come back to something that I often talk about, which is knowing ourselves as expert, um, because I can only imagine how challenging this must really be for you um, and how powerful to have sort of unsolicited sort of had this man reach out and bring back to your memory all that Perhaps you've worked really hard to come to terms with, or perhaps has still been unresolved, and you may still feel like you've been reeling from, in which case this opportunity, uh, it really is an opportunity to move forward from, because, you know, so many of my clients right now um, are dealing with 
sort of unwanted uh, memories, experiences, post-traumatic reactions in sort of the wake of all that's happening in the world right now, certainly the Kavanaugh trials and sort of the other Me Too media. And it sort of makes me wonder, you know, in a sense, sort of the why now? It's been years. Um, so, you know, it's great on one hand that he's taking responsibility and is stepping up to make amends and reach out. Um and perhaps, again, it's in the consciousness of Me Too that he's even looking at um, and grasping his own behavior um, and sort of waking up in a sense, which, again, I think is is great to see. But I think we have to be careful about when someone comes to that realization that in bringing the apology, which, of course, is taking responsibility and the peace to hold on to in this, unfortunately, he did try to justify his behavior. And it really is, unfortunately, reckless um, on anyone's part, whether to ever mind read or, uh, you know, jump to conclusions or make presumptions, sort of as you said. And so, you know, I can see that the the unfortunate thing is here's somebody trying to do the right thing and apologize and take that responsibility. But as soon as he adds, that should have been the full stop, right? But as soon as he added the but, um, and then want to give his perspective or quote unquote, his justifications, unfortunately, and again, he's not a therapist and may not know this, but that but statement is sort of what we refer to as the swish effect. It's like all the positive things that he acknowledged and took responsibility on the front end in the brain we don't hear that part. Any time we hear that word, but swish, everything that was said before is forgotten and isn't really registered. So that's why, again, I think it's sort of, you're then struggling with, you know, it wasn't a full stop taking responsibility apology. It's those qualifications, presumptions that I think are leaving it so unsettled for you now. And so I'm sort of saying this as education for anyone listening. When you take responsibility, own it full stop, full stop. There is no but and or anything after that. Now, you know, the, the choice right now is up to you in terms of what is going to be most helpful. Um, and again, there's no gold standard here. And this is where the knowing yourself as expert comes in. Um, whether you actually really do want to reach out and sort of clarify um, sort of where you were and in, in the hopes, right, that he will just full stop take that responsibility. Or it might even be just writing a letter um, or an email that you never send. And it might be sort of the opportunity to reach out to friends or a therapist you may have been working with, because these are painful feelings and only you have an internal sense of what's going to be most helpful to help you to resolve, to move forward, to release them. Um, and that can be work that you do with or without reaching out to him. The most important thing I can say is you were not to blame and any and all feelings that are coming up for you now are valid. And feelings, while incredibly powerful, this is so important, they're not reality. And they themselves won't hurt you or drive you insane. So often I see clients wanting to avoid feelings, and that is the true danger. Um, the danger, honestly, to both your physical and mental health always comes when we try to avoid those feelings because they're trying to communicate something to us. So it's why, again, I'm so happy that you've asked this question because as scary as it is to open all this up, it is an opening up and the talking about it and seeking help that will set you free. Because if you haven't already reached out to get that help that you need, because you may or may not have already done that work before he reached out to you, but it's important that you know that absolutely you can regain the sense of safety and trust because just as much as there are 
understandably is post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic reactions. There's also post-traumatic growth. And it is true that you can ultimately come out on the other side of this stronger and more resilient than before. And that is what I want and I wish for you and any woman who's been uh, a victim of assault, that they know and come out on the other side with their own sense of um, self and self-confidence and uh, that ability to feel safety and to know their own strength and resilience. As always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much again, Dr. Megan. I love what she said about knowing ourselves as expert and allowing for our feelings. That is so huge. KJ, I'm sending you so much love as you navigate this rockiness and hope you get all the mighty rewards, including that post-traumatic growth Megan talked about. It's so real that you deserve. If you or a loved one could use support related to sexual trauma, contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.